episode 36 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Dean. Today on the program is Jens Regelsberger. He's a design director at Google who has been focused lately on developing user research methods for their Maps product. We talk about how to change corporations so that they're better at design and how to make user research a routine part of all decision-making. Jens, thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Wonderful. Great to great to be talking yeah so um and also thanks for being on um in this this busy week right before the holiday um i think we're going to try to get this podcast out before christmas so we can wish everybody happy holidays and um do you have any plans are you you getting out of london uh we'll be here in london for christmas day i really love london on christmas day it's usually really quiet so you feel like you have the city (laughs) to yourself almost but then we'll go to berlin to see family the day after Oh, nice. How about you? Yeah, I'm um, staying in London as well. Uh, not tra- We've been doing a lot of travel this year, and so I decided to kind of stick around here rather because I typically go back to California for a, uh, where my, I have family in Los Angeles where it's uh, nice and warm for Christmas. But um, I am actually I'm excited about this, like the quiet city and the, the um, proper kind of winter weather for Christmas. It'll be nice. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, sometimes you get glorious, uh, sunny, cold days. So I'm hoping for that for next week. That would be wonderful. That would be nice. That would be nice. Uh, so your, uh, what's your title over there at Google these days? Uh, so I'm a UX director uh, here in London. And you look after a number of products, right? Uh, that's right. So we are, I'm part of what we call some UX. So that's our um, core consumer products uh, UX group. So we are looking after maps, search, and of course, assistant, which is one of the big growing uh, products. Yeah. Um, and within that, I'm I'm looking after a couple of our UX disciplines, uh, chiefly research, but also um, design operations and also writing and content strategy. Wow, that sounds like uh, sounds like you're a busy guy. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it hasn't quite uh, calmed down before the holidays yet. That is true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, let me tell you a Maps story. So first of all, I'm a huge fan of Maps, uh, of Google Maps in particular. I uh, um, have uh, I've used that forever and and haven't switched to Apple Maps or anything like that. A big fan. Um, and, to <laughs> yeah, uh, so much so that I have re- realized. So I've been living here in London for two years now, and London mm. is a very uh, how would you say organic city in um, in how it is laid out. It's not the sort of rational New York sort of you know block by block and no uh, straight lines. Yes, no straight true. lines. <laughs> right. Um, and I realized this when I went I went to the Apple Store at Covent Garden to get my new iPhone a few weeks ago. And when I got there, I traded in my old phone. They gave me the new phone and the, the nice genius bar person was like, do you want to set it up now? I'm like, nah, I'll do it when I get home. It's fine. No mm-hmm. problem. And I walk out of Covent Garden um, and I look around and I'm like, crap, I don't know how to get home. My phone is in the box. And I, <laughs> I was like, all right, wait, now what, what tube did I get here? And which way did I come? And I was literally like, I realized that. In almost every instance of me walking outside, I like flip on my phone and take a look. I'm like, all oh, right, I did this way, this way, this way. Uh, and so I <laughs> went the wrong way three times until I actually found the tube stop. And then once I found the tube stop, thankfully there's, you know, maps on the wall and yeah. so I could figure out my way home. But I realized, oh my God, how reliant I have become uh, and how poor my wayfinding skills have become. I don't know if you've had this experience. But. Well, I lived here for 20 years now, and I still use Google Maps a lot in London. So I think it's a pretty good test environment, I think. Uh, that is very true. I mean, I I think, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it's a very good example, right? So uh, where you live gives you a completely different perspective on, you know, what the needs are for for mapping product. I think that is absolutely true. And uh 
I mean, I'm, I, I almost look at my location in London as an advantage, right? So I, I, I get a different perspective on what could be useful and how we can uh, develop the product further. So that is, that is absolutely true. I heard a story, I read an interview, I think it was with Phil Schiller at Apple, and I, I may have told the story on the podcast before, if I have, I apologize, but um, he was talking about the roll up, rollout of Apple Maps, which did not go very well at all, uh, and, and expressing his surprise at, uh, at, at their, the fact that they did not realize that it wasn't going to go well because Maps work so well in Mountain View as they're driving around in their fancy cars, right? And that's because Mountain View is a very simple place to map. As opposed to a place like London or, uh, say, you know, um, uh, somewhere in India or you know, something like that. Uh, mm-hmm. And that hadn't occurred to them, which I think is probably a, a, a kind of the essence of what you look after at Google, right? This idea that like things are different in other places from where we are. We have to internalize and understand that if we ever attempt, want to attempt to design for those places. Uh, that is that is really true. I mean, that is nominally the the job of of UX research. That's you know one of the teams that I look after. Uh, but I think it goes beyond that, right? Because it's not something you can just externalize to a function. Um, clearly, we can do a lot in terms of um, the research we bring into the company and how we um, help product development along. But it's also it's more like it's really about culture and lived experience. I think. Um, what makes me really happy is that the Google Maps team is actually one of the most distributed teams we have in terms of product development. Clearly, you know, there are people in Mountain View um, that, that work on Google Maps, but we also have teams in Europe, in Asia, in Australia. So we have almost like these global perspectives um, built in. Uh, that doesn't mean we can be lazy and not do explicit user research, but there is clearly a cultural element as well that gives the empathy and the day-to-day outlook like just you know, just like you got lost in Covent Garden, uh, that is maybe something that happens to our team members too, and that then sparks an idea for um, what we could do better and what we could invest in next. Well, tell me about the scale of that. Like, if uh, I would imagine the Google Maps team is big, it's not just a dozen people. <laughs> it's uh, got a couple more, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is true. And they're distributed all over the place, and you are trying to get some uh, sort of unified sense of. Um, of the problems you're trying to solve, uh, some unified sense of empathy for the people they're solving the problems for. How do you even approach a problem like that? Well, there's a couple of things we do. So one thing in terms of empathy is what, actually one of the biggest uh, successes this year, something that makes me really happy is the team um, uh we, we created like I I, could, I would say like it's an empathy at scale exercise. So we set a goal of having about two thousand engineers. Um, take part in a, a, a user study or not just as a user study, but really run it themselves. So no matter where in the globe they are, we ask them to spend one hour with a user and have the user teach back how they use Google Maps. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that has been, you know, like the, 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 the before and after that you get, you know, you get a group, we do this in, in group settings. So you have, I don't know, 20 uh, colleagues, mostly engineers, but also from marketing and, and, uh, and product management come into the room. They're like, well, I kind of know my product really well. I'm not sure what's here to learn. And then they spend an hour with a user doing the session, the user research essentially themselves rather than reading a report. And the the energy you have after this in the room, like the, the shattered preconceptions, <laughs> the, the eureka moments that happen, that's so much energy is released and that really changes perspectives and that's you know per person that's actually a really modest investment it's an hour or so of their time 
but it, it it creates a lasting and memorable uh, impact and and also creates i think some humility which is really important as well and we do that across the globe as i said so that's one example um and we've just yeah we've just passed the mark uh we, we hit our goals i'm very happy about that your goal of 2000 engineers yeah yeah so that is something that we've um, you know, we thought, oh, wouldn't it be nice if we had this this culture change effort? And I think it it really uh, it really uh, it really worked out. Um, now, this of course is not the full story of research, right? So there's an element of of culture change and empathy uh, that is important, but we also have to gather actual insights, and we do that um, through field research. Uh, we are sending teams out to to live in these cities to actually get lost just like you got lost mm -hmm. uh, we we want them to get lost in in unusual environments not just in covent garden but maybe in rural india maybe uh in a you know like in a really busy street in delhi or so and we've done that this year um we've, we've we have a long history of doing this with our um product teams focused on specific features but for the first time this year we really took um the entire leadership team with us and had um from the top down, everyone uh, goes through these experiences. And that, that again, created a lot of energy. But because we um, did that as part of our annual strategy planning cycle, it was not just energy, but it was also then energy that was productively funneled into our um, product planning. And that is something that um, you have seen the fruits of some of this already. We just had an India, um, uh, Google for India launch event where you saw two-wheeler mode that we launched. So uh, much of transport in India happens um, on uh, rickshaws and mopeds. And of course, the routes you would take are different uh, in those vehicles compared to cars or walking. So we now have a dedicated mode for that. Um, that's just one example uh, uh, where you know, like these these um, immersion experiences, if channeled well and if organized well, can really um, have not just feature level impact, but shift uh, product strategy in the in the long run. Oh, I got some questions for you about both of those uh, programs that you Go developed. Ahead. <laughs> yes. the, uh, let's talk about the immersion one. So mm -hmm. you say from the top down, who are you talking about? Like the person ultimately that oversees maps or does it go higher than that or? So in this case, it was the head of product for maps, okay. the head of design, and uh, the head of engineering. All right. So, so, yes. so at least multidisciplinary. Yeah. And how do you convince somebody whose time must be one of the most scarcest resources you could imagine to mm -hmm. take take the um, to take the time out to to do this sort of thing because it's not because something like that is not just an hour like you got to get them to india and you right you gotta that is quite a bit more <laughs> yeah right. it's a huge investment um i think um we i think the, the short answer is um top down and bottom up at the same time so on the bottom up side we have um we have built a reputation of running these things well with smaller teams uh at more junior levels so that has you know that has been noted, I think. So there was certainly um, a willingness to to make that investment because of the credibility we have built up. Um, then on the top down side, um, about um, I think this is four years ago now. Um, we um, a couple of years got together and we essentially made a pitch to Larry and his team uh, and showed him how it started off actually pretty small, um, you know, just showing how a couple of design polish and usability issues, how they really can build up uh, across a user journey and, and pose quite formidable uh, hurdles to users. And that pitch uh, really set off a big, big culture shift from the very top um, because Larry understood it, got into this, and um, uh, enabled us to um, 
really shift the business, I think, or begin shifting the business, right? So we then worked uh, with HR, with um, the leaders in engineering, in product management to see how collectively we can create more of a focus on um, um, on user-centered design and and also on, on on design polish and design quality. That's something that, of course, at our scale is not a quick flip or no. quick change that you know that's done instantly. But it's something that has given us a platform and and a set of principles that we can reference when we you know when we, for example, come to the maps leadership now and say, hey, this is a solid investment. We know it's expensive, but we believe it is important that you take part in this and. Um, that is how actually both the executive immersion trip, but also the, the empathy at scale, they were both um, anchored in this shared understanding that these are important investments in, in culture change and in, in empathy. So it sounds like a process of just persistence, right? That, that, That's a bit of that. that well, <laughs> that yeah, right. That like, well, first of all, the executive meeting was four years ago, but I would imagine it took a number of years. How long have you been at Google? Uh, it's 11 years now. 11 years, yeah. So I imagine it took a number of years for you to even get to this position where you could get on Larry's calendar, right? Like, I mean, that's a CEO of one of the biggest companies in the world. Um, it, it would have taken, uh, and, and let alone to feel confident enough to have a plan to pitch to him that was ultimately successful. Like, um, that, that's got to take just like, well, something worked here on this project I'm working on. Let me try it with a couple more and a couple more. Let me go up a level and try. Is that sort of what, what played out? Uh, I think, yeah, I mean, I think a couple of factors came together, right? So there's certainly credibility built up over time. Um, it's also, you know, <laughs> we may have tried these things before, right? And it was just not the right time. Mm. I think there's also... Um, so um, learning from failure. So <laughs> <laughs> that is certainly, I mean, that's one of the principles, I think, of what we do in UX as well. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, the, uh, I think it's also true that the environment changed, right? So our, um, our leadership, and that probably includes Larry as well, you know, they have... Um, they have they started looking at UX differently over time as as the valley has changed as our industry has changed. So I think there was also more willingness I think on on their side. So it's certainly not I wouldn't claim this. Oh my God, you know, we got the band together and changed company culture just by that. There's a couple of factors that play into that, but persistence, as you say, was was certainly part of it too. Yeah. Do you see this uh, kind of infecting other teams uh, outside of Maps? Yeah, so to be clear, this um, the the conversation that with Larry four years ago that was not map specific at all. This was really going across um, all all of our consumer products. So in that sense, that effort we we called it a product excellence initiative. Um, that that um, you know that is affecting other teams as well, um, and they they might you know interpret it differently. They may have different uh, different efforts, but the the goal or the spirit is really the same: improve uh, user focus, improve um, user empathy. That's great. That's that's a um, you know, sort of inspiring for I think a lot of people that are in organizations that don't feel uh, valued around the kind of work they do with user experience. I think that's pretty common. It's been my experience, at least, especially back when I, in my consulting days, when I'd find that um, uh, there was a, there would be pockets of people who understood that uh, you know interaction with end users was the kind of the key to decision making, but that. Um, was not very widespread at their organizations and that felt kind of very defeating, frustrating. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I mean, prior to Google, I was in consulting too and I, I would agree with that experience yeah. as well. I think the time, um, 
has shifted also, right? So there is much more openness to design thinking, not just applied to product, uh, which of course is hugely important, but also more, you know, more broadly to to business strategy. I think, and that that personally, I find that very exciting. I mean, that's also something that if I look at my own work now, that has almost been a shift in focus for me as well. So while I still deeply care and 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 uh, and have a passion for product design and applying user insight and user research to product. Most of my, um, I use most of my toolkit, so to speak now for organizational design. Um, that's, uh, that's how I feel I can have uh, impact uh, at Google, but also on our users by enabling teams, by running these empathy programs or by, by initiating, um, um, let's say these immersion trips. That is certainly something that that I find very gratifying and also really nice to see UX thinking and UX practices um, carried through in that domain. Yeah, so that is uh, that's very much uh, leverage, right? Like taking the the skills, yep. the, the toolkit, as yep. you as you put it, yep. and saying like, well, I can make this one product or this one set of features in a product the best it possibly could be, or I could use that to kind of make us better collectively at the discipline and therefore make all of our products better. I like that. That's, um, I think that is, uh, well, that's kind of a transition many people make in their careers from practitioner to leadership, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. I have, you know, I've thought a lot about this. I mean, ultimately what we're talking about here is kind of change management at a, in a corporate scale. Right. And, uh, and I have been thinking about that frustration that a lot of UX designers feel uh in their careers when they're at companies where that change is very difficult um i think my personal response to that was uh that kind of acknowledging there are two ways to affect that change one is very much what you're doing that sort of systematic like uh, process change um and and frankly a set of uh values that that a corporation adopts over time to get better at what they do as opposed to i think the direction that i have uh taken which was to Say, you know, another way to, to make better products is to replace those companies with smaller ones that, <laughs> that have the belief, right? And so I've gone yeah. into the kind of entrepreneurial um, and investing side of things. Um, even if that means ultimately those companies get acquired by a company like Google or, um, you know, Amazon or whatever, uh, and, and use that almost like the Trojan horse strategy to say, like, here's something that was growing very rapidly, but to really get it to scale, we're going to bring it into this other organization uh, and have it hopefully affect the corporate culture. Um, You've done time. that at Google, I believe, right? <laughs> uh, I'm, well, I, I, <laughs> I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm only pausing to say, I wonder how much impact we really had, but I guess, you know, we tried, we tried to do that. I felt like it was pretty successful at Adobe when we did that um, uh, a little more recently, but um, mm -hmm. I don't know have you, uh, if you have any thoughts on that, that sort of framework there. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of ways in which, so first of all, I really agree with what you said about, you know, process and values. I, 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 I mean, we spoke a lot of about about programs and processes. I do think there's a much more uh, leverage um, in in going directly to the values and to the professional identities, both of um, you know, like engineers, product managers, but also UXers. I think, in particular for UX, we've really shifted um, what it is to be a, a product creator or product designer. I think that is something that ultimately has more enduring value, but it's also harder than, than saying, hey, we put these processes in place. So one of my favorite quotes from Peter Drucker is, um, culture eats process for breakfast. I think that's, <laughs> that's yeah. so true. Um, so that is, I, I very much agree with that. In terms of um, change from the inside versus change through the Trojan horse, <laughs> I think, uh, I, um, 
we acquire uh, companies a lot and we learn a lot from them. But it can also be very difficult, I think, um, for uh, for the you know the smaller companies that that come in to really um, uh, defend their culture and to um, to you know to to really be that kernel or that seed of change. It, I've seen it go both ways, to be honest. And it's something if it goes well, it's beautiful and and amazingly powerful, as as you've experienced, uh, I think as well. Uh, but as also, you know, it, I've seen it fail <laughs> in many ways too, and that's really heartbreaking then too. Yeah, the uh, the transition um, in an acquisition is is incredibly difficult. Um, and it's not something that very many people have a chance to iterate and get better at, you know? Like that's, that um, is a hard one, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it is really dependent on the acquiring company to to facilitate that kind of and decide, right? Like you really do have to decide, like either we want to just consume this company and, and make it part of us or we want it to change us. It's really hard to have it both ways. Really, really hard. You, uh, I've heard many stories of acquisition where like on the day the deal closed, like a team comes to the startup office and changes all the phones and all the signs come down and everything. You're part of us. It's, a, it's an interesting thing to sort of look at in the context of how do we change companies to make, help them make better products. This episode of Presentable is brought to you by Eero. Never think about Wi-Fi again. Eero have created the dream Wi-Fi setup, a fast, reliable connection throughout your house and even the backyard. And now is the best time to get on board with Eero as they've just released their new super slick second-generation devices. Eero have now introduced their tri-band second-generation model along with Eero Beacon, allowing you to build a Wi-Fi system that's perfectly tailored to your home. The new second-generation Eero includes a third 5 gigahertz radio, making it twice as fast as before. This lets you do more than ever. Whatever your Wi-Fi needs, Eero has the power to blanket your entire home in fast, reliable Wi-Fi. It sits flat on any surface. Just plug it into the wall with the included power adapter, and you're ready to connect with Eero either with Ethernet or wirelessly. The new Eero also includes a new thread radio, which lets you connect to low-power devices such as locks, doorbells, and more. And Eero are introducing the new Eero Beacon as well. Just plug it into a wall and expand your coverage into any room. You can add as many beacons as you want, so long as you have an Eero device. And it even includes a built-in LED nightlight with ambient light sensor. The Eero app lets you manage your network from the palm of your hand. And you can easily create and share a guest network, too. And the Eero customer support is amazing. You can get a hold of a Wi-Fi expert in just 30 seconds. The new Eero system starts at $399 for one second-generation Eero and two beacons. That's everything you need to get started. Listeners of Presentable can get free overnight shipping to the U.S. or Canada when you head to Eero.com and use the promo code PRESENTABLE. That's Eero.com with the promo code PRESENTABLE for free overnight shipping. Thanks to Eero for their support of this show and for all of Relay FM. All right, so let's go back to the uh, – you used a phrase called empathy at scale. And uh, you were telling the story of like how you got 2,000 engineers to sp- spend an hour with end users. I would imagine, again, the genesis of that was it was working on small teams. You wanted to um, try it with other teams and then it essentially turned it into a systematic process that's going to affect the culture of the company. Yeah. Actually, that one is – I'm, I'm glad you're asking. That came out of a conversation with Marissa many years ago. No <laughs> Marissa kidding. Marissa Meyer. Yeah. And she put it almost as a challenge. <laughs> like, hey, well, how would it be if you did that? Uh, and she was like, well, but you won't be able to do it at scale. And we're like, mm, maybe we are. <laughs> and uh, so, I mean, that was at a time when, when Google was smaller, when, when the Maps team was smaller. So we did it, um, you know, at a smaller scale. But then this year, partially driven by the um, the conversation that since had happened with Larry and team, uh, Jen Fitzpatrick, who's the head of um, of Google Maps and who used to run um, uh 
Google UX actually many, many years ago. Uh, she was like, hey, remember that thing we tried a couple of years ago? Why yeah. don't we do it? But at, you know, 10x <laughs> this yeah. time. And we did. And uh, it was a big success. I mean, Jen was really happy also. Uh, it's something that um, sometimes it's just good to set these audacious goals and and uh, just try it out. Yeah, that was my experience, frankly, when I was at Google, was this the, the continuously being challenged at thinking about scale. Think, yeah. you know, if you're thinking about things about in the thousands, think about them in the trillions, and th- you know, and and how does that shift how you think about the problem? So if you're thinking of like we're going to do a dozen user sessions, like what would a few thousand look like, right? So yeah, and you approach it very differently, and that just that change in perspective, I think, helps you think through it as well. The one thing I want to say though that you know, yes, scale matters, of course, but I think we're doing a lot of things also that are much smaller. Uh, and deeper. So for one example is the team, um, maybe two years ago, they were like, hey, these labs that we have, you know, these classic usability labs in, in Mountain View, they're okay, but um, <laughs> Mountain View is not really the place to get the most um, diverse set of, of participants into the door. So uh, we just started putting those labs on wheels, and we now have a couple of uh, research vans, and we go on day trips. Do the vans drive themselves? Uh, not yet, but okay. that's certainly <laughs> of interest. Uh, so, uh, hang on. You, you've built vans with, uh, and you like have people come into the van and do a test, or how does that work? Yeah, I mean, essentially, it's it's really simple. Uh, but <laughs> in retrospect, we're like, why didn't we do this earlier, right? Um, it's it's just a small lab in a in a small van. Uh, it's Google branded, and we drive it about two hours from you know from Silicon Valley uh, uh, to get a much broader range uh, of of people that we can talk to. And um, you know we'll park it in a in a mall or in a parking lot, and then people get you know are curious, come by, and we typically again take take along uh, some of our engineering partners, some of our product managers, and it becomes a fun day trip. But it's um, you know it's not quite as much of an investment as doing the full immersion to um let's say to india but uh i think it again shatters some preconceptions in really useful ways because there is there might be some um some sense of like hey you know it's you know it's at home where you know we're in base i know everything i know um uh, how people look at google or at our products but you'd be surprised how you know how how diverse perspectives are even just at our doorstep and that that is again uh, it's a much more boutique much smaller uh, um approach but it also um uh, helps us get diversity of perspectives so. and it's also something you could scale i would imagine it's just a matter of resources but it, but the, it, it's a f- fundamental again practice that you have found is is effective and yeah. more effective than getting people into the frankly rather stale environment or, or sterile environment of a of a corporate campus and things like that yeah, I mean the whole like the whole usability lab. I think it's you know yes, it has been the mainstay of of the research uh, profession, and it still is useful in for many uh, core usability tasks. But there's so much else that uh, we need to do that might have more leverage, and that is where much of our focus has been lately. I think. And and do you do things like discovery research and and stuff like that? Not just like look at this product and try to accomplish tasks. Yeah, I mean, everything we do with immersion, I would classify, or field trips, I would classify as uh, discovery research. So that is hugely, hugely important. Um, And it is, um, yeah, I think that is also where we have the, 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 I mean, coming, you know, 
coming back through the 11 years that I've spent at Google uh, initially, and I think you've spoken to Irene uh, on this podcast as yeah. well, right? So she told you, <laughs> spoke to you through the early days, and it was really all lab usability that that was perceived to be the thing that um, that mattered, and that that UX research or usability analysts at the time uh, did do. And I think that perspective has hugely shifted. We still do that; it's part of the job, but it's you know like maybe I would say I know 20 percent rather than than the full thing. Yeah, well, 10, 12 years ago, uh, just getting usability testing in was significant, was was a, 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 a cultural shift in the way that like just the there there was a sense that many people in the organization believed that it would lower the quality of the products if you involved users in their design, mm-hmm. right? Like that they're not professionals. They don't know what, like, what do you, what could you possibly get from them that would help? You know, we're the experts and we should make this and and I'm painting with broad strokes, of course, but I think much like some of the innovative things you're doing, just getting some labs built, getting the resources to do that was a huge win uh, a decade ago. Yeah. Uh, on one, sorry, one other thought on the uh, on the whole, you know, what we do in those labs, I think that can also, you know, that is important, right? Figuring out fine detail in terms of, you know, are certain actions discoverable? Are they, you know, efficiently mm-hmm. placed and structured? These things, of course, matter, and we still deeply care about those. Um, but I, again, the, I think we've evolved better ways of doing them. So we are spending quite a lot of uh, energy now on on building prototypes that we then test with, I don't know, 500 or a couple of thousand people. Um, it's almost like a, I mean, a pre-AB testing that we're doing, uh, and we do that based on behavioral data, but also um, getting um, user sentiment at scale for these prototype tests that we do. And that again is something it, it answers the same types of questions we did with usability testing, but we have a more um, more credible way of doing that. Uh, so we've we've almost like pulled apart in, in two directions, I think, what used to be done in usability tests. There was a bit of real people empathy. There was a bit of um, um, usability insight. But I think if you look at what we really need, we can go much deeper with uh, proper um, immersion and ethnographic insight if we pull that out of these labs. And then on the other side, if you want to have fine-grained design feedback on sometimes you know micro changes, then we can also do that much better with, with these scaled prototyping approaches. So I think we are just being more uh, more differentiated in, in how we um, approach the questions. I love that. I love that. Like, yeah, let's really like, you know, sort of take the, these processes and methodologies apart um, and not just assume they just, they've they've held up over all this time. That's great. Tell me about that. So you make a prototype and get it in front of a thousand people. Like, are these people that are opting in? This can't, like, you can't scale that kind of qualitative research. Is this just you're doing analysis of how they use the product? Or, like, what are you learning from those? Yes, yeah, so if you look at, you, know, you can look this, put this almost at a scale, right? So Google is famous for doing live uh, uh, experiments and live A-B tests all the time. Yeah. And that's, that's you know, many, many thousands of people. But of course, what you can't do, and uh, you, can, you can only look at the behavioral outcome. You don't know anything, you know, did they like it? What were their associations with the brand when they did this? And um, I look at these prototype tests that we're doing now as, as like a midpoint, right? So we can actually set them a task. So there's a bit more control for us. And we can also have a quick search at the end where you can get at some of the more um, emotive or effective attributes of the interaction. So it, you know, it has some shortcomings compared to the live test in terms of realness and, and full scale, but it has a lot of um, benefits in terms of what we, uh, what we can actually gather and what we can learn. So we, we are doing that now routinely to get, um, for example, insights on, let's say, perceived tappability of, of certain click targets and how it 
that interacts with other design components or just to see whether, um, let's say, a visual refresh um, is really in line with the expectations we have for the overall gestalt of the of the design. So I think that is... Um, it's just a it's just a good midway point that gives us a bit more fidelity, but also a bit of the benefits of scale um, that we otherwise would not have in a I know ten person usability study or so. Yeah, and then so you kind of ro- have those rolled out just continuously for every change you're making. You roll out to say five hundred or a thousand people. Yeah, I'm not saying that you know it's not happening for everything. It's really a capability we are building right now. But in I think it's you know for example the. Um, the, the the immersion of the field research. We just created a dedicated team that was specializing on, on really fine-tuning and, and evolving how we do that. And that has matured now. So we now do that with our VPs. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's routine part of product strategy formulation. For the patterns or the, the prototypes at scale uh, research, I think we're at an earlier stage. So we're, not, we're still fine-tuning how we do this. It's not quite part of the everyday routine. But that's what I'm personally excited about because we want to you know make it the new normal as well. One of the things you're just describing in there is, I think, really important to to tease out, which is some of these big wins, uh, for example, like getting a, an entire executive team to India or things like that, um, are really events. And they can be meaningful and they can, they can spark a change that happens, uh, change in direction, change in thinking. But they're still events and they're not the way we make products, right? As opposed to getting these things to be just the default way we do them. Right, that every decision that we make, say as a leadership team, which includes you know the bus- the people that are responsible for the business, the profit and the loss, the people yep. that are responsible for the technology, all of that, get all of them to to fundamentally change their decision making process to be one that is essentially based on the practices of design thinking, as opposed to my opinion or purely analytical or whatever. But to bring that in, and that is the fundamental change. It becomes not an event but routine. Uh, and that I think that is what we are seeing right now. So I had a number of conversations with with leaders across the company now, um, and and they say yes, you know, I understand that I need the quantitative data and the metrics, and I understand that that's how I lived for a long time. What I've learned more recently is that we also need that lived experience, or that you know these these yes, they are events, they are but they're meaningful um, events that are memorable and that provide energy in the organization and momentum, and that is something that is actually very actively sought after by our partners in PM and engineering leadership. So I do think there is a that that change uh, in perception has absolutely set in. That is true. I think mm-hmm. that is now how again, you know, I can't speak for the entire company, but it's certainly true in in the product leadership that that I'm working with. This week's episode of Presentable is brought to you by Pingdom. Start monitoring your websites and servers today at pingdom.com slash RelayFM. You'll get a 14-day free trial, and when you enter offer code PRESENTABLE at checkout, you get 30% off your first invoice. Pingdom is focused on making the web faster and more reliable for everyone who has a site, and they do this by offering powerful and easy-to-use tools and services. For example, if you're a Pingdom user, monitoring the availability and performance of your server, database, or website will be a breeze. Pingdom takes care of this by using more than 70 global test servers that emulate visits to your website, checking availability as often as every minute. These days, websites are becoming more and more sophisticated and often include several dependencies, such as contact forms, e-commerce checkouts, logins, search functionality, and loads more. So Pingdom makes it possible to monitor the availability of all of these key interactions that people will have with your site. And it's not just about the whole site anymore. 
Look, let's be real. Stuff breaks on the internet all the time. Every month, Pingdom detects like 13 million outages. That's more than 400,000 outages every day. So regardless of whether you have a small website or managing complete infrastructure, it's super important to monitor the availability and performance. All Pingdom needs is the URL you wish to monitor, and they'll take care of the rest. When Pingdom detects an outage, you'll be immediately alerted so that you can fix the error before the downtime affects you. You don't want to get caught out when someone wants to access your website, so you need Pingdom. Check it out today, and you'll be the first to know when your site is down. So go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM for a 14-day free trial and use code PRESENTABLE at checkout to get a massive 30% off your first invoice. Our thanks to Pingdom for their support of this show and all of RelayFM. I saw a reference in a talk you gave recently to the Montessori method. It's a, oh. it's a part of sort of cor- corporate change. And, I, and I've always been intrigued um, uh, by the Montessori method. My kids for a year went to a, a kindergarten in the United States uh, that that was uh, not officially, you know, with the trademarked term, but based on many of those principles. Mm-hmm. And I was fascinated by it. And I love like, oh, my God, are you thinking about there's a metaphor there for how we make products or, or affect this change? I would love to hear what your thoughts are on that. Uh, yes, I mean, I was just reflecting on, you know, the, how my own, actually, how my own job or my own professional identity changed over the last 10 years. Because when I when I joined, I, I had done a PhD. I was like, oh, I'm hired here to be the scientific neutral um, <laughs> arbiter or, or expert. That was when I, you know, when I walked through the door here. And that was also very much the culture at Google, right? It's all you know, like, uh, that's, you know, science. And and I still believe in science. <laughs> but yeah, I think yeah. the uh, if if I look at, at our profession as, well, UX research, just what more broadly as designers and and UX professionals, we are um, we are often facilitators, right? And we facilitate experiential learning, and that's where the Montessori principles came in, right? If I look at the portfolio of things that I and my team are doing right now, much of it is really um, creating these, um, essentially not importing best practices, um, but creating these moments of insight, those moments of learning for our partners facilitating them carefully creating them but that is that is a big part of the job so that's how how that reference came to be uh, i think there's another element uh, uh in here both our founders went to montessori schools by the way larry uh, and sergey did as far as i know yes i didn't know that i've never had the conversation with them about it but that's, <laughs> that's what i heard uh but it's, I think there's also an element um, that has nothing to do with UX or UX research that really is part of the culture here. And that is, to me, really important, which is, you know, like, yes, give me all the data, give me all the best practices uh, you want. But ultimately, I want to try it myself. Uh-huh. I want to fail myself <laughs> and then learn and, and improve on it. And I do think that uh, that part of the culture that pre-existed well before I, I joined, that is something that enabled us to be successful with this change in how we approach research as well. I love that. It, it, it certainly applies to a, a specific personality type. Uh, I think, I don't, I don't know. I've, um, again, I don't want to overgeneralize, but the idea of like being comfortable with abstraction versus being comfortable with structure and process. Right. Um, and the, I think, you know, if you think of that as a continuum and where people fall on that, I've always been way over on the abstraction part and the ambiguity part and, and very, very comfortable with that. Not just comfortable with that, but I realized like my happiness comes from that, as opposed to like, I get a little, um, uh, I don't know, 
I feel a little despair when things are too well structured and everything is all planned out and stuff like that. I, I don't know where I'm, that I'm all comes. <laughs> um, so th- this idea of almost self-directed learning as a way of building confidence, I think it's a really great metaphor for teams and, and uh, individual contributors and stuff like that. So that's cool. Man, it's inspiring. I think it's uh, uh, a very inspiring set of things that have happened at, at Google that you have been involved with in. Uh, for for people who are in companies that where it just seems like very daunting to try to get this sort of stuff to happen. Um, oh, and, we got stuff wrong too. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, you got any good stories? Any good failure stories? That's always nice. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, <laughs> why did I say that's not? Well, I won't put you on the spot. Right. <laughs> the um, the well, I mean, I think one thing that we've gotten wrong, I, I definitely think that's true for a couple of times, is how to do these these field research and these immersion trips. Because you may you may have been hinting at that earlier, right? So when we started that, uh, two things happened, I think. One is, yes, there were nice events, but then, you know, like people went back to the offices and, you know, it was forgotten. Uh, and the other thing that still, I see that a lot, actually, in more generally in the UX community, and it makes me a bit sad, is there's often this, there can be some sensationalism around um, field research, like, oh, let's go to an exotic location and, and let's see what's, oh, it's always all so different and so exciting. Um, so in, in short, people um, went out into the field without the necessary homework or, or the necessary local cultural new. And that that is something that um, I think we've worked really hard. Well, A, we misstepped in, in both those uh, in both those directions, but it's something we've invested in a lot, uh, and that really has helped, I think, um, make these uh, these immersion trips, both at the executive level, but also at the ongoing day-to-day team level, more successful, because we really carefully um, tie them to product planning cycles. We also uh, tie them to our you know, our um, accountability system, so to say, so our um, 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 quarterly uh, commitments that are made, but not just by UX, but by our uh, PM and engineering partners as well. And we just commit a lot to um, doing upfront field research with uh, local teams, with external consultants, looking at uh, cultural data, macroeconomic economic data. That is, there's a lot that is invisible that goes into making these field trips more successful. Interesting. And at the end of the day, you are practicing ethnography, and there are. It's got to be over a century's worth of understanding about how ethnography is practiced and lots of learning about how it was practiced poorly in the past that you can base this on. It's, it's one of the things I am all for any team getting any exposure as they possibly can. But ultimately, the way to get better at it and to get better findings and more appropriate findings uh, is to really look at that discipline um, with a, um, as the science that it truly is. Yeah, I mean, that is that I mean, coming back to my earlier comment around science. So that's why I think it is actually valuable for many of us to have that scientific background as well, because at least you can call out like the, the, the common mistakes that are yeah. that can be made otherwise. So yeah. that that is useful. Yeah, that's good. So what's next? You got any big new corporate change initiatives on your on your roadmap? Well, I mean, the one thing that excites me most is really uh, applying what my toolkit, as I said, to to organizational design. So that is something that um, I'm looking forward to doing next year. So we've grown a lot. We will grow more. We have, for example, Assistant is another uh, product mm-hmm. area that I'm responsible for. There's much happening there, as you, as you know. I mean, all everyone in Silicon Valley is is, is looking at that space. Uh, it will require us to invent new ways of doing UX and UX research, and that is really... Uh, 
what I'm looking forward to at the moment. That's great. Well, uh, Jens, thanks so, so much for being on the program. Uh, is there a place we can send people to see some of your work? Uh, I think I've published some of what we've done um, on the Google research uh, page. Great. Just have a look for my name and you'll find that. Great. I'll put a link to that in the notes for this show. And uh, I hope the uh, end of the year here is good for you and that you have a lovely holiday. Uh, and to you, thanks for, for making time. Absolutely. Thanks so much. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Bean, and this was Presentable. Presentable.